So we're in Luke chapter 7 on page 879 of the Church Bibles. Luke chapter 7, and we start at verse 19. Verse 19 says, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. But they feared the people, so they watched him and sent spies, who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So that's a long introduction to the little section. Luke gives us plenty of detail about the motives of these people, and it's a pretty nasty picture, isn't it? The scribes and chief priests were offended by Jesus, and they wanted to lay hands on him. And I'm pretty sure that's not in the prayer meeting sense. (laughs) They wanted to deliberately trip Jesus up and get him into trouble with Rome. And they did it using espionage and deceit, which are the favorite tools of all corrupt authorities. The question about taxes and the question about resurrection aren't sincere questions. They're not coming to the teacher wanting to learn. They're trick questions. The questioners are deliberately raising hot-button issues in order to get the teacher into hot water. So it's no surprise that the subjects that they chose to question Jesus about were death and taxes, right? (laughs) Always hot-button issues in any age. So, we get to talk about death and taxes this morning. First, we're going to talk about taxes. In verse 21, the spies asked Jesus, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Slimeballs! (laughs) Here's their question. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? And by lawful here, they of course mean, is it right according to the law of Moses? So the question they ask is whether it's right for Jewish people to pay taxes to Caesar. That is, to give up their money to fund the Roman oppressors. It was definitely a hot-button question for Jewish people in the time of Jesus. Now, some Christians today in this country have pangs of conscience about paying taxes. Because we know that some of that tax money is spent on wars and developing weapons, on exploiting the earth and its natural resources, and on terminating unwanted pregnancies at home and overseas. But in our case, there are still a lot of good things that happen with our tax money, and there are still a lot of things we can do about the problems. So we still have representation along with our taxation. Finally. (laughs) And we know that while some of our tax money might be spent poorly, a good chunk of it is invested in roads and utilities and the many forms of infrastructure needed for human flourishing. It's invested in a stable justice system and in providing for the poorest and sickest members of society and in humanitarian aid overseas. Now, think about how awful it was to pay tax when none of those things were true. For Jews to pay tax to the Romans was just horrible in every way. They were forced to pay at sword point. They had no political representation. They were funding the very regime that was tyrannizing them. They were funding an empire built on idolatry and paganism, which worshipped the emperor as its god and murdered people for public entertainment. So Jews who took the law of Moses seriously could make a very strong case that they absolutely should not pay taxes to Rome. The very Roman coins themselves were idolatrous. So when they handed Jesus a denarius, it would have been imprinted with the image of Tiberius Caesar, 
and underneath were the words, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Our coins say, in God we trust. Their coins said, Caesar is God. And that was so offensive to Jews that there had been a public revolt against the use of these coins. So in 6 BC, Jewish revolutionaries had violently protested their circulation, and Rome had punished them terribly. So by asking this question, the spies knew that they had Jesus caught between a rock and a hard place. If he said, yes, it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then he'd be siding with the Sadducees and the syncretists and alienating himself from the traditional Jews who were supporting him. He'd also be condemning the work and the bravery of the zealots and revolutionaries who'd stood up to Roman oppression. <clears throat> On the other hand, if Jesus said, no, it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then he'd be nailing up his own colors to the mast as a revolutionary. And that would be all that Rome would need to hear in order to do away with him. So from the spy's point of view, it looked like a win-win. However Jesus answered, he would roast himself. But he didn't. His answer was short, clear, and utterly brilliant. And Jesus did three things with his answer. He not only recognized and avoided the trap that they'd set for him, but he also demonstrated his Solomon-like wisdom to cut through a really tricky problem. And at the same time, he provided teaching to people who weren't really asking for it at all. <laughs> so here's verse 23. This is what Jesus said. Jesus perceived their craftiness. Craftiness. That's the word used of the snake in the Garden of Eden. And he said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So in true rabbinic style, Jesus answered their question with a question. And then he threw the problem back at the questioners. If it belongs to Caesar, give it to Caesar. It looks at first glance like Jesus might have left the issue up to individual conscience. But he did a lot more than that. He laid the groundwork for them to come to the right conclusion. And it hinges on this idea of the image. Jesus asked them, whose likeness is on the coin? You can give Caesar the things that have his image stamped on them if you'll give God the things that have his image stamped on them. And where has God stamped his own image? On us. On all humanity. Genesis 1 verse 26 let us make man in our own image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So Jesus brilliantly used a trick question about taxes to teach the truth about the kingdom of heaven. Because Caesar had a kingdom. And his kingdom ran on money. And so the coins bore his likeness. And that likeness demonstrated Caesar's possession and kingly authority. <clears throat> but God also has a kingdom. And God has also stamped the likeness of himself on the treasures of his kingdom. On all men and women. <clears throat> and that likeness shows God's possession and God's kingly authority. 
So let Caesar have his coin, as long as God gets you. We're part of two kingdoms, and we're answerable to both. So in his answer, Jesus affirmed Caesar's right to be king. <coughs> Fallen humanity needs political structures, and actually they're a gift from God for our good. Governments have the right to make coins in the king's image, to bestow them as rewards, and to demand them back in taxes. And even when those governments become corrupt, they don't lose that right. That flow of money is the lifeblood of all human kingdoms, which the earth still needs. But what interest has God in money? That's not where his image is printed. God's interested in human hearts. That's the offering he wants. For you will not delight in sacrifice, said the psalmist, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. So give Caesar the coin that he made and God the heart that he made. And when you do offer your money to God as he commands, it's not the money that he really wants, but the generous heart behind it. So Jesus' answer taught them about two kingdoms. And the reason they had a problem with taxes was they had the two confused. The earthly and heavenly kingdoms can exist simultaneously side by side. And in fact, they have to. And we can and must be citizens of both at the same time. But perhaps the people at the time got confused because Caesar had gotten himself confused. Caesar had intruded on God's patch. Not satisfied with being merely king or even emperor, Caesar claimed himself to be a god. And that's why in Luke 20, verse 22, the money for Caesar isn't merely a tax, but a tribute. A tribute is something you pay to the gods. But that was Caesar's problem. And Caesar would be the one to answer for his blasphemy and megalomania. His sin and confusion didn't need to confuse the Jewish people. They could still pay him tax as emperor and save their true tribute for the real God. So I think in his answer to the spies, Jesus does answer any questions we ourselves might have about paying taxes. We can pay them faithfully without being troubled in our consciences. Because we're responsible as earthly citizens to pay our dues to the government that God has set over us, and we're not ultimately responsible for how every penny of that money is spent. But of course, if we do find that we have authority in government or a voice in political questions, we can still speak the kingdom of God's truth to the earthly kingdom, because the earthly kingdom will soon have to answer to the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so we've dealt with taxes. Now for death. Or, more properly, resurrection. So, in verse 27, there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny there is a resurrection. And this is the first time in the whole of Luke's Gospel that we meet any Sadducees. So we get to meet them for the first time, and I'll introduce them to you. <laughs> the Sadducees usually hung out around Jerusalem, which is probably the reason that we haven't met any up till now, because Jesus has spent the whole first part of his life up in Galilee in the north of Israel. So we've met a lot of Pharisees, 
And they were disciplined uh, students and scrupulous keepers of the law. But the Sadducees were way different. All right, the Sadducees were syncretists, compromisers. They were Jewish leaders who had cozied up to Rome, and they were happy to adjust their religious beliefs for political advantage. And unsurprisingly, Rome liked them the best. <laughs> so Sadducees made up the bulk of the wealthy Jewish ruling class. They lived in big houses in the fanciest parts of Jerusalem. And one of the key ways that Sadducees had compromised their faith was to just toss out the idea of resurrection, which was something that the Pharisees believed in very firmly. So resurrection is the idea that after death, God's people are raised again and given new eternal bodies. The Sadducees didn't believe that, and Luke tells us. Uh, and in fact, that they thought the law of Moses itself made the idea of resurrection ridiculous. Because Moses had commanded that if a man died and left his widow childless, the man's brother or close relative had a responsibility to marry the widow in order to protect her, to give her children, and to continue the dead husband's name. This is what scholars call leveret marriage. And it exists in a good many other cultures in ancient times and still today. But the Sadducees used the law of leveret marriage to scoff at the idea of resurrection. Because imagine it happened seven times over. A family of seven brothers kept the law and all married the same woman. And then they were all resurrected. That would be a terrific mess. <laughs> One bride for seven brothers. That won't make for a happy musical. <laughs> Here again, the Sadducees think they have Jesus pinned against a wall. Their argument comes right out of the law of Moses. How could he refute it without betraying Moses? But of course he does. And once again, their mistake comes down to a confusion of twin realities. So in the first problem, people were confusing the kingdom of God with earthly kingdoms. And now here, in a similar way, they're confusing this age with the age to come. So Jesus says in verse 34, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Problem solved. They made a false assumption that marriage was an eternal reality, but it isn't. And Jesus goes on in verse 37 and 38 to prove the idea of resurrection. He proves it from Moses himself, from the book of Exodus, and not just from Moses, but from one of the most important events in Moses' entire life. God said to Moses that he was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he's not the God of the dead, but the living. Very simple, very powerful. So here again, Jesus shows his wisdom and his Solomon-like ability to cut through deceit. But more than that, Jesus gives them a lot of teaching in this interaction. He tells us a lot of stuff about marriage and about heaven that we really didn't know before. And remember, this wasn't a genuine question at all. It was a trick question, a scoffing question, a question that really didn't want an answer. So it would be like one of us going up to Jesus and asking, 
Jesus, can God make a rock that's too heavy for him to lift? <laughs> and not only having him pierce through the logical fallacy of that question, but also give us a life-changing lesson about rocks and gravity and the power of God. It's above and beyond. So here's what Jesus says about marriage from the end of verse 37 and into verse 38. He says, The children of the resurrection no longer marry, for they cannot die anymore. Because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Wow. Did he really just say that? Jesus blows their trick question into space with some of the biggest ideas of the afterlife ever uttered. There isn't going to be any marriage after the resurrection because men and women will live forever like angels. And that's surprising because the marriage of men and women not only predated the law of Moses, but it even predated the fall. It was part of God's original plan for humanity. But, Jesus says, it's not going to be part of the new creation. It's not going to be part of our eternal, resurrected lives. And later on in the New Testament, we find out why that is. Because actually, we find out there is one marriage in the new creation. Just one. The everlasting marriage of Jesus to his bride, the church. So all of our marriages in this age point forward to that great reality. That we all, each one of us who's saved by Jesus, we all get to marry God. And in doing so, we become more perfectly united with one another than any husband and wife in this age can ever be. So in the Sadducee's silly hypothetical scenario, the poor woman who had to marry and grieve seven husbands would end up in the resurrection, not married to any of them, but more than married to all of them. In her cosmic scale, marriage-eclipsing wedding to Jesus. The truth of the matter leaves the scoffing Sadducees looking ridiculous. For their teeny tiny view of God. <laughs> Jesus explodes their worldview. And if we grasp hold of what he's saying here, then it gives us this incredibly bright vision for our future with God. We all have marital bliss in our future. We all have a future that's full of hope and promise. Wherever we stand now in relation to earthly marriage, whether we're enjoying it or not enjoying it or ending it or grieving it, or waiting for it. We know that we all have true marital bliss in our future. And the knowledge that marriage, as we know it, is temporary, helps us to have better marriages here and now. Because marriage isn't the end goal, as the Sadducees thought. Marriage is only a stepping stone. It's part of the scaffolding that prepares us for eternal life. And that changes the way that we think about marriage. It changes the way that we decide who to marry. Because it stops being about who I think I can I keep liking forever and ever. <laughs> and it starts being about who will most help me grow like Jesus. That's right. Come on. And who can I most help to prepare for eternity. And it changes the way that we face struggles in our marriages. Because marriage is temporary. The marriage itself is temporary. But the people in the marriage are eternal. So instead of asking, how can these two people make a better marriage, we instead ask, how can this marriage make two better people? And actually that question also tends.
toward a better marriage. So when I was thinking about whether to marry Sarah, I thought about it this way. And you should know that I was inclined to take the question of marriage super seriously. But this thought helped me. I thought to myself, John, you're going to live forever. Obsessing over who to marry is like a man who's about to go on a journey of a thousand miles, obsessing over who should go with him down the driveway. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that it's not a big deal. <laughs> 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 Marrying Sarah was a very wise decision, <laughs> and she's been a constant blessing in my life. But I think our culture tends to obsess over the decision, and maybe some of you need to hear Jesus saying to the Sadducees, none of you are still going to be married in a hundred years. So what Jesus says in response to the two trick questions avoids the trap and shows his Solomon-like wisdom, and it throws in a whole lot of teaching as a bonus that no one was asking for. <laughs> so, after two dumbfounding responses from Jesus, his skeptics are just they're ready to be done. <laughs> they pulled out the big guns and they were thoroughly shamed, twice. They mumbled, teacher, you have spoken well. And they turned around to leave with their tail between their legs. But Jesus isn't done. They started this, and he's going to finish it. He's got a question for them. Jesus just sliced through two of the toughest Gordian knots around. But the challenge he threw back at them was one of the most basic and uncontroversial beliefs in all of Judaism. That the Messiah is David's son. Everybody thought that. The Pharisees and Sadducees actually agreed about that. The Christ is David's son. But Jesus, he wants to challenge him. How could they think that when David called him Lord? So Psalm 110 verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. In Jewish culture, fathers didn't call their son Lord. Sure. You wouldn't call your son Lord. Sons might possibly have called their father Lord, but never the other way around. Only one situation in Jewish culture might have caused a father to call his son Lord. And that's if... The son was appointed, anointed to be king. So it's just possible that Jesse called his son David Lord after he was anointed. That's possible. But that possibility is excluded with David because David's already a king. So all of his sons would also be kings, but David would not call any of them Lord. Unless there's one other possibility that had never happened before. That the son was God. Then his royal father would call him Lord. The Jewish leaders in the first century didn't expect their Messiah to be divine. They expected a human savior, a mighty king in the line of David. But Psalm 110 proves that if the Messiah is David's son, which is by unanimous Jewish consensus that he is, then the Messiah is also God, because there's no other alternative. That's the only reason David would call him Lord. And therefore the Messiah was king, even while David was king. His heavenly kingdom operated alongside the earthly kingdom of David. So once again in this third interaction, we see the same idea of the two kingdoms. 
the two parallel realities. This idea of the two kingdoms is the golden key that unlocks all the problems and controversies in this part of Luke chapter 20. So while Jesus was cutting through their trick questions, he was also teaching them about what kind of king he was and what kind of kingdom he'd come to establish. He was correcting their confusions and their misconceptions and demonstrating that even far beyond King Solomon, he had the wisdom of God to do justice. Amen. Mm-hmm.